Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com. Sketches from Scripture presents Great News, a teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is Great News. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com. Find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. Matthew twenty-seven twenty-two. Pilate asked them, What should I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all answered, Crucify him. Then he said, Why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, Crucify him. When Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. So let's pause there for a second and just talk about the the flogging or what's more commonly called the scourging. This was a Roman punishment, and it was done with something called a cat of nine tails. And it was a uh, something was a, a handle, a wooden handle, or maybe a, a woven leather handle. And on the end, it had long leather strands and tied into the strands would be uh, metal balls, kind of like if you had like a sinker on a, on a fishing line or something like that. And so each strand would have uh, probably about three metal balls on it. Sometimes they would tie in pieces of uh, glass or pieces of sharp metal. And uh, they would also uh, sometimes have these... Um, Stones. These these have been found, or the pieces of metal, I guess. Uh, these have been uh, found from the you know, first century, from the Roman era in Judea. Here's a picture of one that I screen capped off of a video earlier today, and you can see it's a six pointed star on one side, and then an offset six pointed star on the reverse. You see this particular one on one of the sides. One of one of the points of the stars is is broken broken off there at the top. And then you see on the on the far on the third photo on the right, you see it from the side. You see it's almost like a gear, like a bicycle gear or something like that. And so the point of that was it would dig into the skin. So the 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 scourge, the the, the flail that they would have, the cat of nine tails, the the Roman would hold on to the the handle, and the leather strands would come down like this, and they would hit it as a whip and it would land and whip the back of the person and the metal balls would cause bruising the pieces of glass and metal those sorts of things would of course cause lacerations the whipping itself the leather would cause lacerations and these metal pieces these uh sort of uh, star spurs here would stick into the skin and and the muscle and when the flail is then dragged across the skin, these would uh, almost like uh, if, you, if you think about, um, you know, one of these uh, uh, pastry things where you're, where you're, where you're uh, perforating, you know, a piece of pastry to make uh, croissants or something like that. It, was, it would essentially work that same kind of way. It would roll across the skin and uh, tear the skin. And just cause many uh, punctures, lots of pain. The whole the whole point here was 
was pain and suffering. And the Romans had gotten quite good at making someone suffer and, without killing them. Because uh, if you're a Roman, what's the fun of you know hitting someone if they're going to die quickly? The whole point of causing pain is that they would be in pain for a long time. Scourging was so awful that it was um, not done to Roman citizens. So you may recall Paul in the book of Acts is about to be scourged, and, and you know he's a Jew, and so they they're about to scourge him, and he says, "Would you do this to you know a Roman citizen?" And suddenly they realize he is a Jew, but he's also a Roman citizen. And once they uh, realize that error, then uh, they don't scourge him because they're like, you can't scourge a Roman citizen. It's considered too grisly. It's considered too violent. Uh, it's considered too shameful. It's only for people who who are not elevated to the status of Roman citizens. It's only for non-citizens. And so this line that we're very quick, you know, for for not careful to read over in Matthew, where uh, it says, uh, then he released Barabbas to them. And and after having Jesus flogged, I mean, it's not even a complete sentence. It's just a half of a sentence. And yet uh, the amount of pain and suffering and blood that went into that half of a sentence is immense and is more than many of us could bear. Uh, the purpose of flogging was to get the truth out of someone. Usually in this case, there was no need to get the truth out of Jesus. So a lot of people speculate perhaps Pilate flogged him in hopes that that would be enough and that would appease them. But um, of course it didn't. And so he handed them over to be crucified. Again, Pilate is uh, not any kind of magnanimous person or anything like that. He's uh, he, he doesn't see Je Jesus as an innocent person. He just doesn't see what the big deal is. And the reason he washes his hands is not because he you know, finds no fault in him. It's just, hey, what, what you want to do, it's going to be on you. I don't want anybody coming back and saying that it was my fault that this happened, especially when he sees there's a riot about to take place. He just says, just, just take him, whatever. I don't care. You guys sort it out. And so uh, if you've seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, there's a quite graphic representation of the scourging of the flogging with uh, just big pieces of skin being ripped off. And uh, it's extremely graphic, but probably uh, very real uh, to what it, what it would have been like. Okay, let's go back to the text. Oh, actually, I got one more, one more graphic here. Let me, let me just show you. I think, I think everything I explained was clear, but they had this also, so I'll show you. So here is the, see the wooden handle and then the leather thongs that would come down with the small pieces of bone, metal balls, and those sorts of things in them. Here you see someone tied to a scourging post. You see their hands uh, here in the middle, their hands are tied up at the top of the post. And you'll notice that this figure appears to be naked. And of course, that was uh, that was the, the the way to scourge somebody was to um, was to scourge them naked because it's not just about the pain, but it's also about the shame. It's also about just completely humiliating them. In fact, in the uh, resource that I've been using for um, uh, my studies on this scripture, this entire uh, section, these final two chapters of Matthew are called the humiliation and exaltation of the Messiah. So the entire book of Matthew is about the Messiah. It's about the King. It's about the chosen one. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? What is the kingdom exactly? And what is the king going to do? How does he own the kingdom? How does he run the kingdom? Who's in the kingdom? Who's out of the kingdom? What are the expectations? Which expectations are going to be overturned? And most of that takes place in the five sections that we've looked at before, these five discourses, the narrative and discourse, which is, you know, you get the first two chapters, which is Jesus being born. You've got these five discourses, the kingdom announced with the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom authority with the missionary discourse, the kingdom arrival with the kingdom parables discourse, the kingdom action with the community regulations discourse, and the kingdom age where you have the uh, Olivet discourse, the Mount of Olives discourse. Uh, talking about persecution and judgment and these kinds of things. We've got these five discourses, and after those are done, then we have this, the humiliation and exaltation of the Messiah. So this is our act three. This is our climax of the story that Matthew is telling to his contemporary, his fellow first century Jews. Matthew's a Jew. He's talking to other Jews. He's making the case that you've been waiting on a Messiah. Well, this Jesus of Nazareth, he's that Messiah that you've been waiting for. You may not understand what the Messiah is. So let me tell you, tell you 
you know, about his teachings and his life and everything that he taught. So you understand what the Messiah really is and is going to do. And now you will understand possibly why it is that he must be humiliated and exalted. And so we're here in the humiliation and exaltation of the Messiah. And certainly uh, one way to humiliate someone is to um, is to have them be naked in public. Right. And so the, you see that depicted in the figure here. Uh, in the just just to the uh, right of where you see the figure tied up there, you see sort of an overhead view of the flogging where the Roman is uh, lashing it across the back and um, then dragging it across the skin. And then the final uh, drawing on the right there, you see the direction of the whip against the victim's back. And you'll notice that it's going um, with with the muscle grain toward the spine. And um, that way it would cause a lot of pain and it would cause a lot of puncturing and a lot of bleeding and a lot of lacerations, but would keep the person alive to endure just more terrible pain and more shame. So let's now move on. Read the rest. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. So here the... Um, Pilate, Pilate is the governor, the Pilate's um, soldiers mocking Jesus. And one thing you may not have realized before, those of you who were here for the Genesis series, the Light and the Darkness series, remember the one of the first lessons there of that series where we talked about the fall of man, the first sin. What's the curse? Is Adam cursed? Is Eve cursed? No, they're not cursed. Eve is not cursed, but the process of bearing children is cursed. It's cursed with with pain. And uh, Adam's not cursed, but his work is cursed by the sweat of his brow. You have weeds and thorns and thickets, right? And so it's not Adam that's cursed, and it's not really, Adam's not cursed with work. Instead, he's cursed with thorns. Thorns are the representation of the curse. And now here, the curse itself has been woven into a crown to crown the king. So the entire message of Matthew is about Jesus, the king, and he is crowned with the very curse. He's taken the curse upon himself, literally taken the curse upon his own head and is enduring its suffering. And that is what makes him king. It's uh, something I believe really happened, uh, of course, but you, you can't miss the, the, the poetic beauty that the, the writer, God himself, the writer, the Holy Spirit inspiring. Uh, and the writer Matthew, uh, you, you just really, it's hard to miss this, the poetic beauty of this moment where the very curse itself becomes the crown, which makes him king, even though it's done in a mocking fashion by the Romans. So they um, uh, mock him and then they take him to be crucified. Continuing on verse 32. As they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced him to carry a cross, uh, to carry his cross, meaning Jesus's cross. So imagine, um, you know, you've got people coming from all over Judea, from, from Galilee, from, from down southern Judea, coming from all over, converging in Jerusalem for Passover. Remember, it's Passover weekend. And so here you have this guy, Simon, from Cyrene. He's a Cyrenian man. I don't even know, honestly, what his uh, heritage is. He may have just been there as a as a as a, uh, a merchant of some kind. So here's a guy. He's just in town for the big event, and he's roped into this uh, murder. He's roped into this capital punishment. I mean, imagine taking your family to Dollywood. And in the middle of Dollywood, somebody grabs you out of the crowd and says, uh, come here, we need you to drop these pellets in this gas chamber. <laughs> I mean, it certainly would be a family vacation you never forget. Um, but here's a man, he's just ripped out of the crowd and we we have his name 
Why do we have his name? It's just one of these details that could be verified. Remember, Matthew's probably written 60 AD at the latest, still probably late first century when it's written down. And so you have people who are alive who could verify these details or say, no, that's not what happened or no, 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 uh, that guy didn't exist or whatever. And so here you have the story that has endured the uh, test of, of time that has endured the test of being written and distributed uh, during a time when the people it's writing about are still alive. Eyewitnesses are still alive. Matthew himself being an eyewitness. So this is one of those details that an eyewitness will give you, Simon, Cyrene. Verse 33, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. Now, why is this? One could be, um, there's a number of answers here. One could just be, um, he didn't want to receive any soothing and anything soothing for his pain. He wanted to endure all the pain. Well, I don't think anybody wants to endure pain. Certainly Jesus, he prayed, uh, God, if there's a way to get out of this, um, then please deliver me from this. And it uh, seems like he intended to drink it until he realized what it was, that it's wine mixed with gall. And so the the, the gall is like a, it's almost like an aspirin or something. It's like a, it's like a painkiller. Uh, one possibility is he just wanted to remain sober-minded, and um, that's certainly a biblical principle. I think maybe a more simple explanation is this. Just a couple of chapters earlier, just the last chapter, he just told his followers, I will not drink this fruit of the vine. I will not drink this wine again until I'm with you. And so when they put this drink, this soothing drink to his lips. I mean, if it were water, I'm sure he would probably very much want to drink it. When he realized it's wine, he refuses to drink it because he promised, you know, I won't drink this again until I'm with you. Verse 35, after crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. They sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So there will be uh, a little more here uh, about the crucifixion, but not much more. And one reason for that is, at the time that this was written, everybody knew what crucifixion was. You didn't really have to explain it. You didn't have to go into details. People, people knew what it was. They saw it all the time. And so there's not a great amount of description that happens here. In fact, most of the literary references that we have to crucifixion assume you know what it is, assume you know how it's done. There's not a lot of technical writing about the crucifixion. So by the time you get, uh, you know, crucifixion is abolished in around 350 AD, something like that. And so once you get much past that time, you have people that don't know what crucifixion is or what it looked like. And so most of what we might think about is from crucifixion is from paintings. And most of the paintings were done at a time when people really had no idea what a crucifixion was. And, you know, they only knew what they read in scripture and maybe, you know, a couple of writings, Josephus or something like that. But we just really did not have a lot of scholarly work. Well, now we've done a lot of archaeology. We've done a lot of study thanks to uh, internet and modern scholarship and libraries and these kinds of things. We've been able to cross-reference a lot of things and learn a little bit more about crucifixion, but the fact remains, not a lot was written about it because at the time that you would have written about it, everybody knew what it was. You saw it all the time. And so um, so we have to kind of guess at some things. A lot of the things that you may have been taught about the crucifixion, they're probably close to being correct, but a lot of it really honestly is just conjecture. For instance, uh, the cross, of course, how we normally see it depicted as an, as an icon is uh, a T, almost like a lowercase T with the, um, the beam in the middle extending above the cross beam. There really would have been no reason for that. It would have made the construction of the cross a complicated affair. Uh, if anything, the cross was probably more like a capital T where you just had a post that thunk, just kind of went right down on top of a peg on top of uh, some posts that quite possibly were uh, permanently installed at the place where these crucifixions were done or uh, something like that. We're not really sure. One other possibility and something that some people believe is the case is that the cross was an X shape. 
So they take two pieces of wood and they would, you know, cut grooves in each and they'd go together and they'd nail them together or lash them together. And you have these cross and an X and you'd put one hand uh, here and one hand on, on the other. And then you put one foot on one and one foot on the other so that the, the arms were spread and the legs were spread also. So the whole body is in kind of an, an X shape. And you, they would do this because then they could just lean them up against the wall of the city. So in, in the case of Jerusalem, they could just lean them up uh, against the, the city wall. And this may possibly be a way that uh, crucifixions were done. Um, Craig Evans, who's one of the main resources that I've been using, he suggests that uh, crucif the crucifixion, at least the crucifixion of Jesus, was not an X-shaped cross. And here's his reason why. It has nothing to do with archaeology. The X shape, as we've talked about many times before when we talk about chiasms and chiastic structure, the X shape is the Greek letter chi. Well, the chi is the first letter of the word Christos in Greek, which of course is the, the, the word for Christ, the word for uh, uh, Messiah, the word for anointed one, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christos. So that, that hard X sound at the beginning, that's the chi. So uh, Evans says, if Jesus were actually crucified on a chi-shaped cross, the early Christians who were who loved symbolism loved it. I mean, they would have, they would have made all kinds of hay about this uh, chi-shaped cross, the you know, uh, Christus on the chi-shaped cross, that sort of thing. And you just don't see any evidence of that. And so he said. It, you know, basically his argument is if it were an X-shaped cross, we would know about it because they wouldn't stop talking about it. They'd make all kinds of allusions to it. They make all kinds of symbols out of it. So that's that alone for him is evidence that it was not an X-shaped cross, but rather the T-shaped cross as we're used to seeing. Again, like a capital T, nothing extending up. Also, in a lot of these paintings, we see the crucifixions very high. Uh, we know we're about to read here that Jesus is crucified between two criminals. And so typically, what do we see? We see three crosses, and they're very tall. They're very high because they were up on this uh, mountain, right? Well, um, <clears throat> let's uh, look at, at what the text says here. Um, so they, after crucifying him, they divided his clothes. So they came to a place called Golgotha, this place of the skull. Uh, the two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right hand, one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, they say mockingly. Uh, Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God in the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. And, um, you know, maybe we'll get into it uh, down here, but, you know, we talk about Mount Calvary. And so we always think that Jesus is um, crucified on top of this mountain. In fact, if you go to um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, it has uh, basically shrines built over where Jesus was uh, nailed to the cross where he was crucified, where he was laid down after being taken off the cross, and where he was uh, supposedly buried, the tomb that he was buried in for, of course, a short time. And this is all encapsulated inside one church building in um, Jerusalem. And where is the place that Jesus was crucified? Well, it's up on top of a hill. So even if it were on top of the hill, the hill is not very tall. The hill is maybe a story and a half above, you know, what the, the ground floor, as we would say, the uh, sort of the rest of the ground surrounding it, and it's a it's a um, it's a stone it's a stone hill. I mean, it's a it's a geological feature. Now, it's possible that he was crucified on top of that hill. I think more likely is he's crucified at the hill, but at the at the foot of the hill. The hill is basically kind of like a cliff on the side that faces where he's later buried and where he supposedly was laid after being taken down off the cross. And the whole point of crucifixion was not just the pain, but, but remember, it's not just pain, it's suffering. So pain is suffering, but shame is also suffering. Now, we don't really have an honor-shame culture anymore here in the West, but still, even in uh, the, the, the Western Roman society, this idea of shame was a big deal, certainly in the Eastern uh, Jewish 
thinking shame was, was to be avoided at all costs. Honor and shame were big deals in the culture. And the crucifixion of Jesus is really more about him taking on our shame, even than it is about him enduring a lot of pain. After all, he was God. He lives for eternity. This is a short period of time that he's enduring pain, albeit extremely graphic, very bad pain. Uh, but he didn't even last very long for someone being crucified. I mean, people being crucified normally would hang on the cross for days at a time. Often the Romans would leave them hanging on the cross after they died until they deteriorated and wild animals came and, and picked all the flesh off of them. And they collect their bones and throw them in the fire, throw them in the garbage. This is why we've actually only ever found one grave that has a crucified person in it because um, they were not to be buried once they had been crucified. Romans certainly didn't care anything about it. They were considered criminals. And the Jews, I mean, you were only uh, crucified if you had done something really, really uh, unclean and awful. And so you were accursed because you'd hanged on a tree. That's remember one of the laws from the Old Testament. When you hang on a tree, you're cursed. This is why the Pharisees had to crucify Jesus. You know, they talked about stoning him. They attempt to stone him several times. That would be the easiest way to kill him. You just show up and ambush him, throw stones at him, and run away. Well, it should be the easiest way. They tried to a number of times, and Jesus always seemed to, to slip away. Uh, perhaps there was a, a miraculous disappearing, uh, or maybe Jesus was really good at parkour. We don't know. But anyway, he, he was able to get away. So they decided to crucify him, not because Jesus is so slippery and he keeps getting away from these stonings. That's not why. The reason why is when he hangs on a tree, he'll be cursed. And that's important because they're not just trying to squash Jesus. They're trying to squash everyone who loves him, everyone who follows him. They want to show everyone who follows him. See, this guy you've been following, he's cursed. If he weren't cursed, he wouldn't be hanging on a tree. But the fact that he is hanging on a tree, that God allowed that to happen, that proves that he is cursed. And if you follow him, then you are following a cursed thing and you yourself are cursed. That's why Jesus had to be crucified. And so uh, because that was the nature of crucifixion, that was the idea behind crucifixion, it's not surprising we don't find any graves with crucified people in them, although we did find one. And what it was, it was a bone box, and inside were the bones of this person who had been crucified. Both of his shins were broken. Talk about that in a minute. And one of his heel bones was found left intact. Um, and it still has the nail in it. So I'm going to show you the photo. I think this was found in the 1960s. And so here's the heel bone, and here is the nail going through it. It's a little difficult to see, but the big you know, brown part there in the middle, that is the heel bone. So literally the heel, like where the ball of your foot is, that, that, that heel bone, this nail is going right through it. And this nail is 11 and a half centimeters. So what is that, five or six inches and you'll notice the end is curled up. And so this is probably why the nail is still in this bone. Because as they were hammering this nail into the wood, it obviously hit a knot or something in the olive wood. It's probably an olive wood cross, uh, which olive woods uh, can be pretty hard, particularly when you've got these, these nails. And so um, and when you've got the knots. And so this nail hit a knot or something like that and curled back on itself. This probably made it hard to get out of the wood and definitely would have made it hard to get out of the bone to the point where no one would bother fooling with it once they got him off of the cross. You'll notice also that the head of the nail is not flush against the bone. Well, that is uh, probably because there would have been a piece of wood um, between the head of the nail and the foot. Okay, so I'm not going to get my foot here up on camera, but imagine that this is the foot. Okay, and if my chest is the the the, the wood frame of the cross, rather than just drive the nail in straight through the foot because the foot could just tear through and pop pop off, break the, the bone could break and would just tear off and come off the nail. So they would put the foot up against the wood and then they would take a, a wooden a piece of wood and put that up against the foot. And then they would drive the nail through the piece of wood. And so you have kind of a kind of a, a, a terrible sandwich. You have a, a nail going through the piece of wood, the foot, and then into the into the cross. And that quite possibly was done with the wrists also, the wrists or the hands, depending on where the nail went in there. And there's a couple of theories on that also. And so you see that here again in this bone, you see the heel bone, the nail going through where it's been 
curled up there on the left end by hitting a knot or something, and then the the gap uh, on the head there. But you'll notice that this is one nail going through one heel. It's not long enough to go through two heels. Okay, and there, quite possibly, if you've heard of crucifixion happening in some other way, certainly the way I grew up hearing about it was that at the base of the cross beam, there was a little uh, platform where the feet went, the feet went on top of each other, and the nail went through the feet and the, the ankles rested um, on the single nail going through. Certain crucifixions may have been done that way. Jesus's crucifixion may very well have been done that way. What we see from this bone, though, this could not have been done that way. In fact, the nail is actually going in. It's hard to tell by looking at the bone, but the, especially if you don't know what the bone is supposed to look like. But the nail is actually going in the side of the heel. And so what that means is you've got the cross beam and then you've got a foot on either side and a piece of wood on either side of that and a nail in each foot driven into the side, almost like uh, the rungs on a, on a telephone pole or something like that. They're going right into the side and that keeps the feet held in place. So uh, again, you see here uh, in the text, you've got all these people mocking walking by, mocking. So one of the places that you can go in Jerusalem is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I personally believe that is where Jesus was crucified and was buried. Maybe not the exact spots that they have shrines over, but but that that within a, you know several yards of, of where that place is built. Certainly where the things happened to Jesus are all under the roof of that church. But there's uh, another place that you can go. One's called the Garden Tomb. And it, it was a tomb that was found later and it was for a long time thought to be the actual tomb of Jesus, or, or at least close to it. I thought that for a number of reasons. Number one, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is inside the city of Jerusalem. And the scripture very clearly states that Jesus was crucified outside the city. And so they said, well, this Church of the Holy Sepulchre is nonsense because that's inside the city. And the scripture says, well, it's outside. Uh, Later, it was found out and discovered through archaeological survey that at the time of Jesus's crucifixion, where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, that was outside the city. And so now everyone pretty much unanimously agrees that that is likely the site of Jesus's crucifixion and burial. But until people discovered that, then they had to look for something outside the city. So this place was found. It's outside the city. It is uh, a tomb area and it's preserved as one to this day. So it's a, it's a garden and there's a tomb in it and they have a big stone that's been, you know, like a round stone that's kind of rolled away. I'm not sure if the stone is authentic or not, but it's there to show you what that would look like. And the tomb itself is authentic and you can go inside and you can look and you can see it's just one small tomb. It's smaller than my living room. It's probably eight by eight, something like that. Maybe, maybe seven foot tall. If you're a very tall person, you have to crouch down going in. And in there, there's a, uh, like a shelf built into the wall, almost like a bed. And that's where the body would lay. And there's a room in there besides that because the family would come in there and they would mourn and they would treat the body with spices and perfumes and these kinds of things. And so you've got the garden tomb. And one reason why they felt like this tomb that they discovered might be the tomb of Jesus is because nearby there is a hillside and the hillside looks like what? Looks like a skull. It's got two divots in the top, a little one in the middle and a big one at the bottom. And it kind of looks like a skull. It doesn't look exactly like a skull. It's not like Castle Gray Skull out of He-Man or anything like that. But you look at it and you go, oh, yeah, I can easily see that that would be a skull. And uh, right now, you can only, uh, the, 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 the place that looks like a skull is not part of the garden tomb tourist area, but you can see it from the tourist area. They have bleachers right on the edge of the property where you can sit and look and see what is Golgotha. Why is the skull hillside not part of the garden tomb area well it's because it's part of the parking lot of the bus station there in jerusalem so it's property that's been owned uh, either privately or by the city i forget which and so it's not able to be claimed as part of the tourist area you can see it you know from the tourist area but it's just the bus station and one of the guard uh, one of the guides at the garden tomb exhibit will tell you you know it's actually apt that the bus station is here. You may think how horrific, here's this very holy site and there's a bus station, you know, taking up all the space. But actually, it's probably pretty accurate to where Jesus would have been crucified. Again, not, not probably on top of the mountain, but, but here at the foot of the mountain. Why? Because this was a place, it was right by the city. It was a place where everybody was walking by and going into the city. Again, if something like this similar 
was there at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It was the same thing. It was just outside the city. And so everyone, remember, there's hundreds of thousands of people that are in Jerusalem for Passover, and they all are walking past the city walls and going into the city for uh, all the events of the week. And as they do, they walk past those who are being crucified. It was likely not just these three people. It was likely dozens of people that the Romans were crucifying. The Romans crucified people publicly as a way to say, don't do what this guy did. That's why they would put on top of the person where they were being crucified, whatever it was that they did. So uh, perhaps you've seen these punishments where uh, someone has stolen something and they have to wear a sandwich board in the place where they stole something. Part of their punishment is to wear a sign that says, I stole or I shoplifted or whatever. Maybe you've seen something like that or seen it on a TV show or something. That's very similar here. That's why Pilate has put on top of Jesus's cross, King of the Jews. In fact, in one of the other accounts, the Jews tell him, don't say that, but he said he was King of the Jews. And Pilate says, I've written what I've written. I don't think it's because Pilate believed that Jesus was king of the Jews. In fact, uh, he became friends with Herod as part of uh, this whole debacle and uh, treated Herod as the king of the Jews. Uh, I think he just was done fooling with it. And also, it was a good chance to insult the Jews. So Jesus has hanging above him, uh, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And so whenever you see a crucifix, you will see I-N-R-E. Um, hanging above Jesus's head. And that is a, a reference to this king of the Jews, Jewish king, Judean king. And um, so uh, the crosses also were not very tall. They were probably very close to the ground. So you were almost at eye level with the people who were being crucified. Now, that seems very odd to us because we've always seen them being lifted up. They might have been lifted up a little bit just so you could kind of see them over the heads of crowds. But the point here was that, that they were shamed right? Uh, They were totally naked in almost every case. So you see them drawing lots here for Jesus's clothes, Jesus's garments at the base of the cross. It's because they took them off of him. So, you know, after they make fun of him for being king, they take the robe off, they put his own clothes back on. Well, they take the clothes off here and they cast lots for them. Uh, Every time you see a crucifix, Jesus always has a very nice, modest uh, little uh, loincloth or something like that. And um, that's the modesty is very appreciated and appropriate. It's not historically accurate. Jesus was most likely totally naked on this cross. That's part of the shame, being totally humiliated. Um, And so here you have, you're totally naked. You're you're maybe at eye level, maybe a little above eye level. And everyone can spit at you. They can yell at you. Now, you don't see any... um, Evidence here that people are beating Jesus, even though he's close within reach, that sort of thing. Why is that? Well, Jesus is a bloody body who is about to die, and all of these people are here for Passover. So they have to remain clean for Passover. So again, just think of the hypocrisy. They got to remain clean for Passover, but not before they get in a few curses at this guy being put to death. It's totally inhumane and totally goes against the Mosaic law. Total hypocrites. Not just the priests, but uh, the people as well who joined in, those who mocked him. And so you can see just people coming and going throughout the city and Jesus hanging there for hours as uh, people mocked him. You can see the Jewish priest standing there and just waiting for him to die, watching him die, making sure that he dies, making sure that no one comes and rescues him. You see the Romans um, treating this almost like, um, you know, I mean, it's their job, right? They don't care. They don't care if they hurt. They don't care if they're. If they're well or anything like that, they're kind of treating it like they work at a gas station or a cafeteria. That's just their job, killing people. It's what they do all day. Very violent culture. So let's uh, continue reading. I think I've painted um, hopefully a realistic enough picture for you of crucifixion. Let's go on to verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And he very well may be asking, God, why did you abandon me? God, why did you let me go through this? Uh, God, why have you separated yourself from me? Um, uh, Certainly, I think he is asking that in in, in the context of the question. But it's a quote from Psalm 22. And if you read Psalm 22, you have this suffering person that's going through uh, feeling forsaken by God, a verse after verse after verse. But the way it ends with, 
uh, it ends with how God redeems things and how because God redeems things, the narrator of the psalm is then going to proclaim it to everyone in the world. And so not only is this a crying out of Jesus, but it is a reference to the psalm and it's uh, giving you a little wink at what's about to happen. When some of those standing there heard this, they said he is calling for Elijah because he says, Eli, Eli. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. Notice it says that they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. So what you have here is you have uh, the story being told just a little bit out of order. Jesus is the firstborn of the resurrection. Jesus is the first first one to actually be of the resurrection, the the the, the like the judgment day resurrection. Jesus is the firstborn. So who are these other saints? Were they people from the time? Were they, uh, you know, was it Abraham and some of these guys? I mean, nobody's really mentioned my name. You'd think if Abraham got up and said, hey, I'm Abraham. Good to see everybody. You'd think we would have heard about that. You know, we don't really know the details on this. Uh, it's just showing you the 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 really awesome uh, thing that happened. Um, and it, you know, it says, so it's mentioned here as part of the crucifixion. So just because it's here doesn't necessarily mean we should think that these this dead they were raised and then they waited around, you know, until after Jesus's resurrection. They waited around all weekend for Jesus to come out first, and then they came out. It's just um, uh, it's uh, taking all the fantastic events wrapped up in Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection and putting them all together. Quite honestly, the earthquake might not have quaked during the crucifixion, but rather this might be the earthquake that happens uh, that. Uh, later will scare some uh, guards as they run away from the tomb, that sort of thing. And um, so you got a little bit of temporal things sort of out of order here. But again, it's the story that Matthew is telling. Matthew's not concerned with telling you a chronological story. He's concerned with telling you about the death of Christ. Verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly, this man was the son of God. Um, again, those who are keeping watch over Jesus, this quite possibly were the people who were crucifying him. This may be referring to those who were keeping watch over Jesus's body later when the earthquake happens. Uh, many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and looked after him were there watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the Magdalene, Mary from Magdala, which is a city in Galilee, uh, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and Mary uh, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Who are Zebedee's sons? Well, that's James and John, the disciples, part of the, the you know, Peter, James, and John, that inner circle of the 12. And so we see that um, we think about the 12 a lot, that the 12 followed Jesus around. We forget there were other people besides the 12 that spent a lot of time with Jesus, such as these women mentioned here. Verse 57, when it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there facing the tomb. 62. The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, after three days, I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him and tell the people he has been raised from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. Take guards, Pilate told them, go and make it as secure as you know how. They went and secured the tomb by setting a steel on the stone and placing the guards. So um, let's stop here for the evening and we will come back. We'll have one more lesson on Thursday and we'll get to experience as you wait to find out what happens a full three nights and three days until we finish up with Matthew 
28, we talk about uh, the resurrection and the Great Commission and really sum up all of Matthew. So while we're here and we're thinking about the shame that Jesus endured and the humiliation that Jesus endured, what you see is him living out the things that he's been talking about, particularly in the most recent chapters of Matthew. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Here you have Jesus the King, God himself, he's first, and he's made himself last. He's made himself a servant. He's uh, devoted his life. He's thrown his life away to be homeless, to be penniless, to serve other people, to heal them, to feed them, to teach them, to to uh, be an exorcist, to, to cast out uh, demons, to to show signs, to show that the teaching that he has has power, that the teaching that he has comes from God, comes from the Lord. You see him who fir- who is first making himself last, and you could be no lower in the current society, in Roman society, in Jewish society, than to be someone who is crucified publicly, naked, hanging on a tree, bleeding, accused of crime, accused of blasphemy, accused of insurrection by the Roman government, uh, being humiliated, being mocked, made fun of. He takes on all shame. So many times when we approach the crucifixion, we talk about the pain, but that's not really the fascination of Scripture. The fascination of Scripture, more than the pain, is the shame, all of the shame that Jesus took on. So why did he do that? The first is last, and the last is first. Jesus, the first, makes himself last so that those of us filled with shame, filled with regret, filled with sin, could be first with him. And so many of us live our life with shame, shame over our past sins, shame over the sins we continue to struggle with and try to defeat in our life. We struggle with the shame of things that maybe others have done to us. And Jesus comes to the cross as the first and becomes the last to let us all know that those of us who have made ourselves last because of shame, he is going to exalt us. He's going to lift us up so that we do not have to live under the dark cloud of shame anymore. He came to abolish sin and he came to abolish death and he came to abolish shame. And so... Um, when we look at a verse like Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, and this is where we'll end the night. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Already right there, we can almost feel sort of an anti-crucifixion happening. There's a great crowd of witnesses surrounding us. But the the sin, the hindrance that easily ensnares us, easily whips us, easily scourges us, easily nails us down, those things we're going to let go. And we're not going to be frozen, static, nailed to a tree. Instead, we're going to run. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Remember, Jesus says, follow me. Well, Jesus is running. (laughs) And so when we're set free from our cross of shame, from our cross of sin, when we're set free because of Jesus, then we run. We run to follow him. We're going to run with endurance this race before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He is the author and finisher, as some of your versions will say, meaning he began it and he's going to end it. He's the beginning and end. He's everything of our faith, our trust. Every, he's everything we trust in. He's the first and last word in all of our decision-making, in everything that we love, in all of our relationships. And then Look here at the rest of this verse. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So tonight, if you are feeling a burden of sin, if you're feeling a burden of shame, if you are feeling a burden of um, you know, uh, abuse or something that someone has done to you, just understand that Jesus came to despise the shame, to abolish the shame, to endure a shame so great so those who follow him, who love him, would never have to endure that shame ever again. Jesus has come to set you free, has come to pull you, do what no one did for him, to pull you off of the cross, to pull you off of the sin to which you are nailed, to pull you off of shame, to clothe you in righteousness so you're no longer naked, to lift you up so that you're no longer swamped by the crowd, and to call you to follow him so that you can run to a place of, of beauty, a place of um, worship, a place of uh, this We've talked about the, the big wedding party, the big party that's going to happen, a place of joy. And Christ went through all the pain and all the suffering and all the shame. Why? Because of the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? It was the king looking at his kingdom. And what was his kingdom? Was it a geographical place? Was it a castle? Was it uh, acres of land? No, his kingdom, his kingdom is is you. It's me. The joy set before him was you. The joy set before him was me. Because he took such joy, because he took such delight in loving us, he went through everything that he endured so that we would never have to endure anything like that, not physically, not spiritually, not emotionally. He became last so that we could be first with him. So I hope that's encouraging to you. And I hope that it's good news, great news that you can share with somebody because there are many people out there still living, lost, wandering around, confused, hurt, suffering, burdened with addiction, burdened with sin, burdened with abuse, burdened with shame. And they need to know there is a king who will wipe all of that away, and he's begging them, come follow me. Have you ever shared that with someone you love? If it's great news, if it's joy set before you, then you ought to share it. It's words that give life. It's a story that gives life. It's a savior that gives life. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.